So we're centering on the thought of prayer this morning. And just kind of a reminder, Jesus really has three sections where he says, if you do this, you're a hypocrite. And so uh, last week, some of you found yourselves to be hypocrites. Hopefully you worked on that throughout the week. Um, And then this week and next week, he's going to hit us once more with kind of this statement of, if you do this, just understand uh, you're a hypocrite and there's room in the kingdom for you. Um, But don't be that. You know, just kind of thinking about hypocrisy and prayer and just kind of wearing that mask of hypocrisy. It's Halloween right around the corner. And so Halloween, not a big deal at my home growing up. Uh, we just never really did a whole lot for Halloween. Part of that's just living overseas and nobody else recognizing it. So when you knock on their door and ask for candy dressed as a scary monster, they close the door in your face. And so you don't have to do that too many times to recognize there's something categorically wrong with these people. They don't like candy and they um, also don't want to share candy with others. But I can remember uh, one Halloween, uh, we went to school for a brief time on an Air Force base in England, and as you would move uh, throughout the neighborhood on the base, uh, streets kind of had designated ranks, and so as their rank increased, so did uh, the tastiness of the candy and the size of the gifts they would dole out. But for whatever reason, that year, uh, you know, I got to go trick-or-treating with friends, and, and I went as Frankenstein, and so my, I don't know, I don't know, and so my parents had, had got me a Frankenstein outfit, and this outfit consisted of a little plastic mask, right? And so I don't know if you've ever worn one of those little plastic masks, but they're terrible. They're designed to smother children and make them not want to wear masks, and so I've got this mask on, and it's just doing this number on my face. This is like cutting into your eyes, and then they have this like reject rubber band that all it does is really pull your hair out from behind, and you walk up to the door, and you're just, I want some candy. And I'm sorry, what? And so you have to lift the mask, and so all illusions that I actually am Frankenstein always go out the door because they can't hear me from the mask, and I can't breathe very well. All I can do is sweat and just kind of drool, and so they're like, you're disgusting. You're the awfulest Frankenstein I've ever seen. Um, here, take some candy and be gone. And so, like, I'm not fooling anybody the whole time I'm walking around. They're like, oh, like, you're Frankenstein. You're the Frankenstein's monster's kid brother. Nobody believes that I'm actually this monster. Why? Because I'm just wearing some cheap mask that my parents were able to pick up or ask somebody on the base to pick up for them. Nobody's fooled into believing that this mask in any way points to a reality that's true in me. Man, we wear the mask of hypocrisy well. God is not fooled. And when we dress up in hypocrisy, when we kind of don this mask of righteousness, what we're saying is that we want everybody to see us in a certain way, but that reality has no true uh, correspondence with who we actually are. And so what Jesus calls us to do time and time again is to remove the mask of hypocrisy and move in line with true righteousness. Now, righteousness is something that has kind of always been weaving in and out of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus first hit us up with kind of this thought of righteousness back in chapter 5 and verse 6, where he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they shall be satisfied. There is so much in this life that calls out that it is going to be this thing that provides satisfaction to you. 
But what Jesus tells us in this is that, that we have to have this kind of base level desire for righteousness in the very same way that when we're hungry, our stomach growls, and when we're thirsty, our mouth gets dry. He said, this is how we need to be towards righteousness. We need to pursue it so much so that to the point of verse 10 in chapter 5, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, righteousness is what you pursue. It's not a mask you adorn on Sundays. It's not something you put on to make yourself look better in front of your friends or your in-laws. But righteousness is the thing we pursue day in and day out. And this is why Jesus is able to say this when he gets into verse 20 of chapter 5, that our righteousness, if we want to enter into this kingdom, that our righteousness has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. In essence, he's telling us that, that everything about you has to be a declaration of righteousness. And then he gets into chapter 5 and verse 48, and he tells us to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So on the one hand, we're told we have to have this over-exalting righteousness. And on the other hand, he says, you need to move in line with God. And what does that result in us? Hypocrisy or brokenness? Hypocrisy or brokenness? This is why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you aren't broken, when you come to encounter God, then you begin believing that you can kind of assemble the characteristics of God in your life and that you can manage that on your own. God deals with broken things. And when we come to prayer He's going to describe it in terms of kind of this outward manifestation of righteousness or kind of living our righteousness out there for people to see so that they might not praise God, but so that they might praise us. And so he comes at this prayer, which is this intimate communication with God. And he starts in verse 5 of chapter 6. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. We must not be like a hypocrite when they pray. And so he's going to give us a couple of things to describe the prayer of the hypocrites. He says, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners. And so he gives us this picture. He says, this is what this person loves to do. This is kind of where their heart is. They want to be in this place of prominence. And so they would like to stand up here on a Sunday morning and they want to offer this prayer. And they don't enjoy praying unless people observe them. They don't enjoy kind of moving in line of righteousness unless somebody sees them and says, man, you are a righteous man. You are a righteous woman. That was completely self-effacing what you did. That was completely just kind of this base level righteousness that what you did. I wish I could be like you. That's what we see. He says the hypocrite never enjoys pursuing righteousness because of what it says about God. They only enjoy pursuing righteousness because of what it says about them and what others say about them and how they feel about themselves. So he paints this picture. He says, imagine this person that comes in and, and you just know this time is coming and they get up and they, they kind of mount the stage and they get there and then they pray and you think, man, that is just the most amazing display of oratory. That is the most amazing rhetoric and your compassion is moved and, and you just find yourself crying and you find yourself weeping all because of their tremendous display in prayer. What God says of that person if they've been doing it to engender, to create this thing in you, God says they're a hypocrite. And what they've been doing is leading you down a false path. 
And he says, all right, well, let's say they're not standing in front of people doing this, but they find themselves engaged in one of the three prayers of the day for the Jewish person, and they just happen to coordinate it and say, okay, uh, time for prayer is going to be at 3 p.m., and so what I know is that I need to be at the street corner of Wesley in the Loop at 3 p.m., and oh, look at this. I just happen to find myself out here right in the middle of the street. Lo and behold, I'm a righteous man, so now I've got to pray. And so they're stopping traffic. They're impeding progress so that, why? So they can be out there and have this outward display of righteousness. For what purpose? Not so that everybody can see them and say, what a lunatic. Not so that everybody can see them and honk their horn and flip them the bird as they drive by and speed around them and try to run over their toes. But so that people would look at them and say, man, what a righteous person. That they would place themselves out there in this incredibly dangerous place that they would live out their faith for God in the midst of ridicule and surrounding them where everybody can see them instead of doing it back over here in this corner. Because what he describes this person as is a person who only engages in the pursuit of righteousness. Why? He says, it's that they may be seen by others. There's this temptation when others applaud us when others like the things we do or where they make positive comments about us, to prefer their comments of recognizing righteousness in us and to let it stop there. Instead of preferring, instead of desiring to see God glorified, to see him receive the honor and the glory. And man, that's a human level temptation. And the enemy wants you to want that. He desires to, for you to rejoice more in the praise and adulation of your peers, of your spouse, of your kids, and just random people who would send you anonymous letters to tell you how good, great, and amazing you are than in serving him. So Jesus moves, and he's going to give us just two kind of brief correctives on this pursuit of hypocrisy. So he says, instead of kind of being this person who only lives for this kind of outward display of righteousness— this is the, the limit, this is the, the kind of extent of direction we need to go to in, in trying not to be this person. So he says, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who is in secret will reward you. So Jesus obviously is not saying never pray in public. And for those of you who hate to be called on to pray in a small group or whatever, like this isn't Jesus' out for you, right? Like, oh, Pastor, I... I like it's sinful for me to pray out loud, and so like it just kind of right there. This is not you. This is not your out. We recognize if that were the case, then the first and a few chapters of Acts and Jesus Himself would be contradicting this instruction. But Jesus' point is, if you don't desire to pursue righteousness when nobody's watching, then you mistake righteousness for hypocrisy. You mistake hypocrisy for righteousness. What are we pursuing? It says, your father who sees you do this in secret will reward you. Look what he says in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And so he describes Gentile prayer, and he effectively uses this word, this kind of this babbling or just saying uh, nonsense over and over and over again. And, and the situation that Jesus describes, he says, you see, these Gentiles are out there, and, and they suppose that if they just keep going and keep going and just kind of heap phrase on top of phrase on top of phrase on top of phrase on top of phrase, eventually God would be like, oh, my word. Like, here, just have it already. Or, oh, man, all the flowery, flowery stuff was for me, and 
oh, I just, I'm pretty amazed. I didn't know you knew all those synonyms for how good, great, and amazing I am. So, well, here, I'd just, I'd just like to give you this gift. If you think your prayer is more effective because you're heaping up phrases or you've whipped out the thesaurus or, or maybe you read kind of some old Puritan prayers and, and you begin to shape your prayer and be like, man, these are so powerful. I'm just going to add in some of this vocabulary to my prayers. It doesn't work that way. Prayer is this intimate bonding between you and the creator of the universe. So you're speaking to him. You're talking to him. You're, 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 you're bearing your soul, and he's peering in there, and he sees all the junk. And he sees the temptation towards hypocrisy. He even sees us sometimes when we begin to hedge, right? So we know there's something we shouldn't ask God for. But we begin to begin to ask him for something that's really, really similar to that. Oh, God, I just, you know, I, I pray that you would help me to be content in this home that I live in, even though it's not the home that I'd really like. And, you know, God, you just kind of well up contentment in me and just help me to really minister my neighbors while I'm in this home that's not really the home that I'd really like. And, and God, I just pray that while I'm in this home I don't really like, if you just so happen to give me a pool, you know, that'd be okay. It's just a burden that, you know, probably I'm willing to bear for you if you'd find somebody to pay the maintenance and, and the, the elevated cost of my home insurance. But God, this home I don't really like. And so all the time we're kind of praying this, God's just like, look, I get it. You don't like the house you're in, but I'm also not an idiot. And I recognize that what you really want me to do is move in blessing and give you a bigger house and all these other things. Prayer is not bartering with God. Too many of us enter into prayer as if it's this kind of bartering with God. God, I'm willing to do this, to abstain from this, to give this up, if you'll just kind of move in kind. God is not your father in that way. And my kids try and strike deals with me all the time. You know you do. Dad, can I get just five more minutes on the week if, and you know, kind of whatever it is. God is not that way. One, he knows exactly what you need and when you need to have it. He knows exactly what you need and when you need to have it. So much better than we do. Amen? He is not fooled. He is not tricked. There is no wordplay that we can kind of tie him up or, or bind his hands and come back to him and be like, but you promised I could have this. I just know, like deeply I felt that you said I could have this. Quit moving in delusion. Prayer is this intimate bonding with God. Quit seeking to put on this mask of hypocrisy as if God will be blinded to your pursuit. These Gentiles believe that if they just heaped up these things, that God would be moved with compassion or desirous to give them what they ask for. And so Jesus comes back in verse 8. He says, do not be like them. Why? For your Father in heaven, for your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. And this isn't to us a deal of, man, I just, I just might as well not pray because God already knows what I need before I even say anything. It's like you start to pray, you're like, I would talk about that, but you've heard this story before, right? What this is to us, it should be a comfort. This deal that God knows what you need before you ask him for it. I can tell you my heart has asked for things that I did not need. 
My heart has desired things that were not good for me. But this word right here tells us that God knows what we need before we ever articulate it, before we ever kind of conceive of some way to bring this thing about and make it a reality for us in, in our lives. What a comfort it is to know that our God in heaven, the God, the creator of heaven and earth that, that, that sustains everything, that upholds everything, that he's not so busy upholding the universe and keeping nations from going to war with one another that he cannot also intimately be engaged in the finite, ridiculous details of our lives. He knows what you need before you ever ask. He knows what you need more than you do. Do we trust God with our prayers? So Jesus comes in, and, and we all know the Lord's Prayer, but I just want us to spend kind of the lion's share of our time walking through it this morning. It's not really Jesus' prayer that can be found in John 17, but instead it is a model or a kind of prayer that we can base our prayers on. Notice its simplicity. Notice its stunning nature. Jesus also isn't saying your prayers can only be short. But instead, he gives us something incredible that we can recognize in this prayer. Kind of if you look at it as a structured whole, verse 10 really, kind of right before 10, the end of 9, right before 10, gives us a picture of kind of God's sovereignty and understanding God's coming kingdom. And then he transitions in 11, and he really begins to kind of move to us in our dependence upon God, this idea of kind of give us our daily bread, help us move in this way. And so this prayer is kind of holding up this tension of there are prayers directed to God, and then there are prayers directed kind of at the events that are surrounding us, the events that are kind of most pressing, we would say, we would kind of articulate in our actions daily demonstrate, we believe. But look at this. Jesus begins this prayer. He says, pray then like this. And he has this incredibly compact statement, our Father in heaven. Prayer is not a personal endeavor. Prayer is not primarily, solely a personal endeavor. It has this incredible communal aspect to it. And so that's why he casts it in terms of our Father. Do you see that? This should at least in some sense mean to us that our prayers cannot solely be a laundry list of all the things we want, suppose we need, and, and just things that impact and have, have weight upon us in, in our lives. So we come into prayer, and Jesus speaking to the disciples says he is our Father. And so this gives us a sense that our prayers should have this horizontal application to those around us, right? And so how do we know what to pray for for the people around us and in our lives? And we've got to be open, honest, and transparent with them. And they have to be open, honest, and transparent with us. If you don't know what's going on in the lives of those around you, then you have a limited ability to pray for them. So he comes into this. He says, our Father. This gives us a sense as well that God is incredibly close to us. This God of the universe, this God who created everything, this God who sustains everything, is this God who you can come and relate to as Father? I mean, this should stop us in our tracks. It should stop us in our tracks. 
We have this incredible intimacy with God because of Jesus, sustained and carried by his Holy Spirit. And so he says, our Father, and then he casts it in terms of he is in heaven. So he's reminding us simultaneously of our intimacy with him and then God's incredible transcendence, that he is high above. And so this gives us, in some sense, this understanding that our prayers cannot be, should never be, flippant, Right? God's not your best buddy who you just kind of dumb down all of your language to engage and speak to. God resides in heaven. He is judging all men right now. So this gives us this understanding that there's this incredible weightiness to coming in to prayer. So he's our father, but he's also the father of all humanity. He's created everything and he has sustained everything. This is the God we pray to. We're able to have incredible intimacy with him, but at the same time, don't mistake and don't trade on the intimacy you have with God for casual familiarity. I mean, God's not your buddy. He's not your chum. Our Father in heaven. So he's going to move and he's going to pray three concrete things about God. So the first one he goes to, he says, hallowed be your name. Now, this is, this is somewhat interesting in the fact that we recognize that in, in terms of kind of hallowed or hallowed, if you prefer that language and that, that enunciation, that God's name is already as holy as it can possibly get, right? And so we're not actively ascribing and saying, God, look, your name, it's just kind of been, it's just kind of been run down in the neighborhood a little bit, and so I just, you know, can just kind of dust it off. I just want to make your name a little bit more holy. That's ludicrous. But in a very real sense, what our prayer is, this recognition that in heaven, God's name is everywhere. And then his name is utmost holy, right? There's no growing in holiness. There's no growing in grandeur for God's name. And that is a reality in heaven. And so this prayer that God's name be hallowed, in, in, in some sense, and kind of on this earth, the application in the prayer is, God, would that be the truth in the hearts of those I encounter, that your name is holy. Would that that would be true in the heart of my lost wife, in the heart of my lost husband, in the heart of my lost kids, my lost neighbors. Would that the nations would cry out and rightly recognize your holiness. So this prayer that God's name be hallowed has in a very real sense an evangelistic tone that we recognize that the vast swath of humanity does not move and engage in such a way that would lead us to any belief that they believe that God is holy, right? Do you see this? Like when you woke up Monday morning and you're watching the news, you're like, oh yeah, this news is great. I just, I clearly see that everybody here recognizes that God is holy and they're all moving in submission to him. No, if it is like move it off TBN, flip over to CNN, Right? recognize that the vast majority of people on planet earth don't think God's name is holy. Don't be foolish. But our prayer is that they would. Our prayer is that this heaven reality that God's name is hallowed will be true in their lives. And in praying that, we begin to recognize what God's holiness dictates for us in our life. And so it's not just this looking out and saying, oh, you know, this person's not as good as I am and they're not as righteous as I am. God, I pray that your name would be hallowed in their lives. But the more holy we recognize God is, the more intense we recognize that his holiness is demanded of us and in our lives. Be perfect, Matthew 5, 48, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So all these 
loose words we pass in, all the thoughts that enter into our mind, all the actions that betray true righteousness, that it's just us putting on the mask of righteousness again. The prayer for God's name to be hallowed has a tremendous effect on us and in our hearts. And we cannot long withstand personal, personal hypocrisy when we recognize how holy and righteous our God is. So he says, Father, hallowed be your name. And then he turns and he has these kind of dual ideas. He says, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we recognize that God's will and God's kingdom exist in complete perfection in heaven, right? And so he's recognized as the right ruler, the right authority, that that everything just kind of moves and, and has this ebb and flow according to all those things that God deems to be right and true. But when we look around and on the here and now, we recognize that, man, his kingdom is coming, but it is not yet established, both fully in my heart and among the nations. And so we look out and we see turmoil. We look out and we see hate. We look out and we see all kinds of of, of judgmental attitudes towards people. We look out and we recognize these things are not as they should be. That even though Jesus rose from the dead, that he is ruling and reigning and sitting at the right hand of the Father, that things aren't working out the way we suppose they should. And so when we see atrocities uh, committed, when we see justice upended, when we see families destroyed, when we hear things and we're just like our heart is broken and we just think, why? We recognize we serve a God whose kingdom is coming, but it is not yet. We serve a God whose will is perfect, but we do not see it yet fully displayed and beautiful on the earth. And so the prayer for the Christian is not, God, keep me safe from just the hurt that surrounds me. But God, would you establish your rule and reign? Would you do it in the hearts of men, the hearts of mankind? And would you make it more pronounced in my heart? So that my life is not lived seeking to establish my own kingdom, but is lived as a faithful servant of his. And so that my life is not lived seeking to bring my will to bear on the reality and in my relationships, both at home and at work and and with friends, but that my actions and my heart long to see his will established, to see his will become manifest. Can I tell you, there is no end to the limits that the enemy, that Satan will go to convincing you you're right and somebody else is wrong. Our will longs to be the the prime ruler in our lives. Our kingdoms long to be established in our lives and in our families. This is why over and again we see this wonderful picture in Scripture, serving others and forgiving others, being dependent upon God in all things, 
So this idea of, of dependency, he moves in, and so we've, we've prayed these kind, of, these kind of heavenly prayers. Our Father in heaven, we want your name to be holy. We want to see your kingdom come. We want to see your will be done. We want all these heavenly realities to be true down here so we don't see rape and murder anymore, so we don't see people abused anymore, so we don't see sickness anymore. We want to see these things become true and right and universally recognized. So then he moves and he says, give us this day our daily bread. Exodus 16, God is moving the Israelites from um, kind of confined and slavery in Egypt, and he's taking them to the promised land. And they get out there, and if you've ever read Exodus, it's like the constant grumbling. It's preparing you for three-year-olds. And so... <coughs> So it's just constant grumbling. So they get out there and they're like, oh, we should have stayed in Egypt. We had pots of meat, meat to eat, right? And so they're, they're thinking back to just how great and glorious slavery was. I mean, it's ridiculous. So God begins to move and he brings them bread from heaven. Is what the text tells us in Exodus 16. Manna from heaven. And so the idea is that every day they would go out and they would collect enough food for that day. They collected any excess, it would spoil. But God gave them what they needed for each day. So we come into this prayer, and the prayer is, give us this day our daily bread. This is teaching us something. One, we should eat more bread. Two, <laughs> low-carb diet, you're killing me. We need to be daily dependent upon God. It is so much more comfortable to be a people who just kind of annually need God or in the emergencies of life, my wife's dying and like she's on the hospital bed and so I suddenly get very, very righteous and very, very, you know, just kind of broken before God. Oh, these are all the sin in my life. Now that that's gone, would you heal her? Would you heal her right now? We feel dependent upon God in that moment. But the word from Jesus for the Christian is every day. Every day. In every moment, we are solely dependent upon him. Now, Jesus writes this to a first century audience, and they get this. Most of them, at the end of the day, they get enough payment to supply the needs for that day without anything left over. So every day, they know that, man, if I don't get paid, I don't eat. I get paid every two weeks. Some of you get paid every month. Some of you get paid every job. And so our mind processes and thoughts tend to go kind of building up retirement or saving this over here. We're going to save up to provide this for over here. They had no concept of kind of building a better life. Their concept was, if I don't get paid, I'm going to be really hungry. My kids are going to be really hungry. I can tell you God longs for us to have that same type of dependence on him. That every day we would be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You don't get enough on a Sunday. You don't get enough on a midweek Bible study. You don't get enough at your life group to kind of satiate your hunger for him. But that we would come to him over and over and over again. Temptation is to wear the mask. To display our righteousness just enough to carry us through the next time. But to remove that mask is to daily be convinced of our need for God. Now, he's going to end this prayer with the idea of forgiveness. 
But kind of in the midst of his idea of forgiveness, he's going to talk about temptation in verse 13. So what I want to do is I want to talk about 12, 14, and 15 together, but I want to start with 13. So he's going to tell us we need to forgive those. And then in 13, he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The idea there is that God would lead us into righteousness, that he would keep us from succumbing to temptation, from giving in to temptation. Everybody in here is tempted for something, right? Everybody in here struggles with some temptation. If you don't believe that's true, then you're tempted to be an idiot, and that's your temptation. <laughs> but everybody in here is tempted for something. For some reason, you're tempted. Something is tempting you, even now. And those who are broken before God recognize that. And we cry out to God, would you help me not to succumb to my own temptation? James tells us that we are tempted by our own desire. So there's something unique to me that I'm tempted towards that maybe Jesse and Justin aren't. Or maybe Noah's not, or maybe Tim's not. But there's something unique to me that the enemy looks at and says, this is, this is so going to get mad. He is such an idiot when it comes to this. He thinks it's good, and then I just lure him, and I set the trap, and I've got him. There is something, and we need God's help not to continually fall into it. We need the help of our brothers and sisters to look at our lives and say, like, everybody sees this trap, and you're walking towards it. Stop. There's a lot of things we could be tempted towards, but I think what makes the best understanding for me, and, and Jesse and I can disagree about this, but I think what makes the most sense for me is why he places this idea of temptation in between discussions of forgiveness is because if you've ever been wronged, if you've ever been sinned against, if you've ever been hurt, the overriding temptation is to do what? Greedily hold on to it. We're not quick to forgive. We're not quick to let go. The temptation that tends to destroy friendships, families, and fellowships is holding on to bitterness and hate. So he places that right in the midst of the statement on forgiveness. And we could do weeks on forgiveness. We're not going to. We're going to do minutes. But he starts in verse 12 and he says, forgive us our debts. And so he's clearly talking about sin. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So Jesus is moving carefully in some sense, and he connects our personal sin with sin against us. So Ken has never done this. But let's just say Ken sins egregiously against me. So God says, okay, your prayer in this is, God, would you forgive me my sins in the same way I'm moving to forgive him? So the same way I move to extend grace and forgiveness to Ken is essentially what I'm praying for in verse 12. So this gives us an indication that some of us are struggling to be forgiven. Why? Because you're greedily holding on to bitterness. And that's the temptation, to greedily hold on to bitterness. So he comes into verses 14 and 15. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And this is great news, right? Raise your hand if you've never been sinned against. He comes into this. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, 
your Father in heaven will forgive you. So we recognize, uh, okay, that's a good thing. I want to be forgiven. And this Jesus comes right back into it with verse 15. And he hits us with the other side. He says, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's hard being sinned against. It's hard having people do things to us that wound us profoundly or to someone we care deeply for. Listen to this. If you hold on to that, practically speaking, it will eat you from the inside out. That root of bitterness will well up in your heart and it will be a cancer inside of you. Every relationship you go on to have will be centered around that. Looking out for that behavior and looking out to keep yourself safe. And so you're going to keep yourself walled off from having future relationships with people. That's a practical. But from a biblical sense, if we hold on to forgiveness, then we have no right to it. This is difficult. What we want is to hold on to forgiveness until somebody offers us the most robust, profound, and public display of apology the world has ever seen. And then, and only then, if we think their display of humility and brokenness is approaching the level of perfection we've crafted in our minds over many years. If they do that, in that moment, we've got a real decision to make. Do we forgive them or not? And it's probably a crapshoot for us. Do we have coffee that morning? Do we not have coffee? And that's kind of the, the image we've concocted in our mind. How great it would be for everybody to hear how awful they were how great it would be to kind of hold this forgiveness right here and to be able to withhold it from them or to be able to have the power to finally give it to them. If you're a Christian, this is not your right. This is not within the realm of things you can do. It's just not. If you're a Christian and someone has sinned against you, what you're called to do is to forgive them. Not if their apology is robust, not if they even offer an apology. What you're called to do is forgive them regardless of whether or not they ever say they're wrong or sorry. This is so incredibly difficult for us. We want to suppose that we have the right to withhold forgiveness because someone has not asked for it. And there's even an understanding of this where you can kind of build this, and I would say incorrectly from Scripture. You cannot withhold forgiveness. Jesus gives us this amazing picture of, of what forgiveness looks like in Matthew 18. And I just want to kind of tell the story. We're not going to read it. It's quite long. But in Matthew 18, starting in verse 23, Jesus says, suppose there's this king. And this king goes out and he's going to settle accounts. And so he's going to make everybody that owes him money begin to turn that money in. And so he goes out and he begins to find and he discovers that Ben off, owes him 10,000 
talents, millions of dollars. So he calls me, he says, you owe me millions of dollars. You know you owe me millions of dollars, and I want it right now. Ben can't pay. And so the king says, that's fine. I'm going to sell you. I'm going to sell your family. Everything is gone. And so he breaks down in front of the king, and he cries out, I, I, I'll pay you back. Would you have patience with me? Would you forgive me? The king, it tells us, moved with compassion, forgives his debt. Now notice here, shockingly absent is a process of repayment. Doesn't come in and say, that's fine. I'm going to set you up on a structured payment plan. He forgives the debt. This guy's overcome with joy. His wife and kids, his family, everything he had was going to be sold. His life was going to be spent in slavery. And now he's free. Millions of dollars in debt wiped away immediately. Same servant. He goes out and he finds this guy. What kind of a peer, a guy at the same level as him. And this guy owes him 100 denarii. Just to break this down for you, it takes 6,000 denarii to make one talent. This guy was on the hook for 10,000 talents. A paltry sum in comparison. So he goes out and he finds this guy. He finds Larry. He says, Larry, you owe me a hundred denarii. Pay up. Larry says, oh, I can't. And so what does he do? He puts him in a chokehold. He begins to crush the life out of his throat. Takes the guy and has him thrown in prison. And he says, you're going to stay there until you've repaid every red cent. Other servants, they hear about it and they go to the king. And they say, this is what this guy has done. This is how this behavior has been engaged. So the king calls him before him. He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus tells us this. So also will my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We have been forgiven a tremendous degree. I can't even begin to fathom how much God has forgiven me. My sins of omission, the things I just don't do. My sins of commission, the things I'm too stubborn to quit doing. And he's forgiven me. And when I focus on the grace and mercy given me by the Savior of the world, I cannot hold on to the bitterness that I might be tempted to lord over somebody who's wronged me. Is it easy to forgive? No. But it's what we're called to do. And what you can do is you can come into prayer and you can come into forgiveness and you can put the, the, the easy mask of righteousness over your face. Or you can start and you can stay in the place where Jesus has our heart. Matthew 5, 3. He says, blessed are the broken in spirit. Those who are sinned against, those who are wrong, those who pray to their heavenly father and say, God, I am broken. 
I'm tempted to hold on to this bitterness. Would you help me to lay it down? Would you help me to forgive? This is what he calls us to do. And this is what it is not to wear this fake righteousness, but to give ourselves over to a pursuit of righteousness that has not just the externals of what people see, but has our very heart. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that long to be truly righteous, not just seen as righteous. And God, would you help us? Would you give us the grace to sustain us? And would you make us aware of when we're failing? God, I thank you for the goodness that comes to us by way of Jesus, his death on the cross, his being raised from death to life. He has overcome sin so that we don't have to be slaves to it. So God, would you help us to walk in that reality and in that truth? God, I just pray for those that are struggling to forgive this morning. Would you convince them of the truth of your word? Would your Holy Spirit move in their hearts? Would you sustain them by the power of your grace to extend forgiveness to those who don't deserve it, just as they didn't deserve the saving death of Jesus? And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. We submit ourselves to you in all things. Amen.